Hey guys, before we get started, you may notice it's a little bit different today. I'm not flying solo. Matt is on spring break. So we are digging out an episode from the vault. This is something we recorded a while back, a long while back, but it's a great conversation of us talking about The Shining with comic book legend Gregory Wright. It's a really great, super fun interview, really interesting, but before we get started, before we drop that, we need to do the regular business, which is follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LaunchpadPod and our website, launchpadpod.com. Check us out on YouTube. We're there. This is one that this is like one of the first ones we actually recorded back in the day when we were doing Zoom and trying to figure it all out during the dark times of the pandemic. Uh, but we think it's a great interview. Super fun. Gregory Wright knows his stuff when it comes to The Shining, so we are excited to drop this episode. Finally, here we go. Let's get on with the show. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome to the Launchpad Podcast. My name's Aaron. I'm Matt, and uh, we got a really special episode today. We're doing one of those Launchpad chats where we get some awesome person that is a huge icon in pop culture, but don't really talk about them. We talk about something that they want to nerd out about. Here at the Launchpad, coming straight from the Bat Cave, we have Gregory Wright. What's up, Mr. Wright? Good. How are you guys? We're excited, man. This is great. Uh, So... I'm friends with Mr. Wright on Facebook and uh, Aaron and I had been talking about doing uh, an episode where we're going to talk about a different Stephen King book and we were going to talk about the book versus the movie and then we're going to talk about it with another very big comic book name and I just so happened to see on, on my feed that Mr. Wright posted the top books that had an influence on him and he's got The Shining and it's an old cover of The Shining which illustrates some of the differences between the book and the movie and in your post Mr. Wright you mentioned something about how the you know movies that don't get the book right and I was like oh my we, we got to talk about this so I reached out and you're gracious enough to come on so you guys know Mr. Wright he is a writer he is an editor he is a artist he has worked on every big thing that you can think of certainly not just dc and marvel but everything at dc and marvel um we're going to spend a couple minutes talking about that because how could we not you have created characters in the daredevil universe you have written in the punisher universe those are two of my favorite characters um what are some of the characters that speak to you in comics before we jump over to the you know the stephen king universe well, my favorite character is the original Nick Fury. Um, nice. Back when, you know, he used to be Nick Fury in the Howling Commandos, you know, that was awesome. And then all of a sudden, you know, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee decided, well, let's take this guy, let's put him in into S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, and that was like, oh, you know, because I love James Bond. I loved all the, the, the gimmicks and stuff. And, and it, but he was very different than James Bond because, you know, he was, he was like a tougher James Bond, I guess. Um, and then, of course, once Steranko took over, um, you know, his sort of, you know, visual design and storytelling, you know, it, it was just amazing. So I, I've always been a big fan of, of, of Nick Fury, um, which was funny because when I started working uh, as an assistant editor at Marvel, um, Mark Grunewald hired me as his assistant. And one of the first things I found was we were going to be editing Nick Fury versus S.H.I.E.L.D miniseries. So I kind of lost my mind a little bit, you know, because <laughs> um, I was like, how, how this is the greatest thing ever. I mean, I actually did a, a post on my um, Facebook feed. I've been doing a bunch of essays uh, about comics and what really goes on in comics uh, as opposed to what fans think goes on or what the media reports or what even some creators, they, they get it wrong. And I did a whole, I did a three part thing on uh, Nick Fury because, you know, my favorite character, because I started off as editing that series actually got Jim Stranko to do a painted cover for one of them. Um, then I got to edit the regular series and then I got to write the last six issues of the, of the series. <laughs> so, uh, I've been following around with Nick Fury a lot. So when they decided to go the Samuel L. Jackson route, um, and the movies, I was like, that's not Nick Fury. <laughs> Sam Jackson, you know, Sam Jackson, he's fantastic. And, you know, for the movies, they needed a guy that was going to walk on screen for like two minutes and everybody go, 
oh shit, who's this cool guy? Right. Who else, who else are you going to get besides Samuel L. Jackson? You know, it, it works for the movies, but that's just not Nick Fury. Um, the other character that for me was a big deal was Daredevil. Um, I love this, the, the idea that, you know, he was, you know, I mean, it's cool. He's blind and he can do all this stuff, but the sort of duality of, you know, by day he's, he's a lawyer and by night, you know, he's daredevil who he can solve things sort of illegally as daredevil better than he can as a lawyer. And it's, it's such a nice internal conflict. Um, so those are the characters that for me were uh, a big deal. Now you mentioned sort of, the first Batman, you know, but my first Batman comic was a Neil Adams one. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly uh, what, I, what, I, what I was going to ask is you mentioned the vigilanteism of daredevil and you know, you're sitting in front of a Batman picture background. What is your feelings between those two characters? Like they're both these great vigilantes, very similar, but how do you feel about Batman versus daredevil? How do you feel about those two characters? Well, they're, they're completely different, you know, um, you know, Dare, you know, Batman, you know, kind of created himself, um, out of a, a sense of wanting to avenge his parents, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, Daredevil, you know, it, it, you know, happened to him, you know, he, this, this thing happened to him and then people came to him to teach him, um, cause he, you know, he was alone and whatever. So, uh, they're, they're, they're very different, you know, Daredevil, you know, I think Batman's a little you know, he, he's a little more likely to sort of break the rules. Um, and Daredevil is a little more likely to, to, to try and do the right thing more often. Wow. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're both human characters. Um, I, I, I love both of them. You know, I had some nice runs coloring uh, Kelly Jones on Batman and I did, did a lot of work with uh, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale on things like the long Halloween and dark yeah. victory. That's some um, of our though. favorites right there. You know, and, you know, who doesn't love Batman? I mean, you know, you, you know, you've got to love Batman. Yeah. When you do something like, like you mentioned, uh, Jeff Loeb and Tim sale, you did long Halloween with them first and then you did dark victory after that. And we've actually talked to Tim sale about those books before when you guys work together on, on long Halloween, that's a 12, 13 issue run. So I'm sure you guys kind of figured out, you know, your rhythm between the three of you as that, that book progressed, when you get to dark victory, now you've already done that first run. Do you guys kind of hit the ground running harder on that one? Because you already have worked together before on a similar book. Like what's the difference? But I guess one of my questions is what's the difference between starting long Halloween and starting dark victory. There, there's, there's really no difference because, you know, uh, Jeff and Tim, uh, they work out all the story uh, and everything. And then by the time, Tim, you know, and then Tim and I work out the, the how the art's going to work. But, um, you know, Tim is a, a, like, he's like one of the ultimate storytellers, you know, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, actually I, I first did a book, I think it was, it was a Halloween special with Tim and I was too busy. I didn't want to do anything. And, um, both of us had an editor at dark horse called Diana Schutz and she kept trying to get us to do a project together, you know, and I kept saying, yeah, this guy's really good. And I, I literally had done one pinup for, uh, uh, some predator series that I, I painted over something of Tim's and Tim just loved it. Um, so Tim calls me up one day and he says, I'm doing this Batman thing for Archie Goodwin. I always love Archie cause I actually started at Epic with Archie. Um, I, I'd, I'd like you to consider coloring it. I was like, yeah, I'm really busy. Well, you're, and then he says, well, you're getting a FedEx package tomorrow. <laughs> I just like you to look at the art. I said, well, okay. So I get this package and it's a whole book. And wow. I take one look at it and I'm just like, Oh my God, I, I have to color this. It was, it was everything I wanted to color. Um, so that kind of started a, a partnership because, you know, I love what he did. Uh, and my coloring style is, and I did not color the bat cave here, by the way. Um, <laughs> my coloring style is about storytelling and Tim's all about story. So we got along like that. So by the time, cause we'd done several things before we, you know, got to long Halloween and then dark victory. So we kind of, every time we started a project, Tim was always evolving what he was doing as an artist. So we would have a lot of long conversations about how the color was going to evolve. Cause if, if you kind of go back and you look at some of the earlier stuff, it's brighter, it's a little more, um, you know, garish, I guess is the best mm-hmm. way to put it. Uh, so we started getting a little more muted tones and by specifically by the time we got to dark victory, he was trying a lot of different things out where we were dropping lines out to try to get more depth. Uh, he was doing some things where he was actually, he's starting to do the gray wash colors. Um, so it was always an evolving process, which is what really made it more interesting, uh, to work with him. I mean, you know, he's a great guy to work with anyway, but, 
um, it was always evolving. So at no point was it not really interesting and fun and satisfying. I mean, really satisfying to work with him on that stuff. Whereas like Kelly Jones, um, I just kind of told everybody, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm just going to do what I feel like. And I'm going to change the character's colors. I'm not going to color Batman, his regular colors. You're just going to have to trust me. And you know, somehow, you know, everybody, everybody loved what I did on, on that, you know, especially Kelly, cause I, I care what the artists think. I don't really care what uh, anybody else thinks. Um, but it, it really worked out. Um, so that was, that was pretty cool. And, uh, Denny O'Neill, uh, you know, who recently passed away, uh, he really liked what I was doing. And that was a big deal. Cause you know, Denny O'Neill, like, you know, the, you know, he was like one of my favorite writers. Uh, so getting his approval, um, was, was kind of a big deal. That's amazing. Now, when you get like a, a blank uncolored page, are there certain things that you see that you get really excited about, like in a bat cave, like, Oh man, I'm going to get to color a dinosaur or, you know, work on the Batmobile. Are there certain things that you get excited to bring life to? You know, it, it's not really about the specific things that are drawn. You know, I mean, it's cool, but you know, it's, it's more cool if you, if I write a story and I get to see them draw that, as a colorist, though, it's more like, what does the art actually look like? So I get excited by the composition of the page and the black versus the white. And like, what cool thing can I do to make this colorful? It's like, I mean, th- this bat cave, you know, back here, you know, it's very nicely colored. Um, but, you know, the, so the colorist brought a lot to it, but there's nothing about the black and white of it that I would go, oh, I can't wait to draw that. It would mm-hmm. just color that. It would just be more like, oh, this will be fun because it's the bat cave. Um, but you know, the, the art itself, um, it's, it's not super dramatic. I don't automatically look at it and think, Oh, I can't wait to do this, this, and this, but you know, I, I like what the colorist did here. Cause you know, he's separated areas with color and it's still dark and mysterious, but it's not all the same thing, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I like when I feel like, Oh, I can do something dramatic with color. <clears throat> Sometimes I'll look at a page and I actually will flash the color that I like on that page. And other times I'll just, uh, it'll take me a while to, you know, figure it out. Cause I don't, I don't want to just, you know, I, I, you know, coloring used to be at one point where people just kind of went through and they colored the characters. They're uh, proper colors. Yeah. Uh, and then they would just put some random background color in that let them pop off the page. You know, you know, you see a lot of Batman where it ha- it's that completely that blue Cape and then the gray and then the rest, I'm like, Batman is a, he's a creepy character. So, you know, I, you know, the more often than I can, you know, color him, you know, yellows and browns in the foreground and then have red in the background. So when you look at the page, you're like, oh man, what's going to happen now? Yeah. It can, it can really inform sort of the intentions of a scene when you are coloring it in certain ways. It really drives your emotions when you read a book and the colors help you like feel the moments. Yeah. I can barely hear you. Okay. I will crank Aaron? it up a little bit. Let's see. There All right. Go. Yeah, you sound better that way. All right, cranked yeah, it up I, a little bit. I got two more comic book questions before we uh, visit the Overlook and get some haunted hotel action going on. Um, Mr. Wright, you're an editor, you're a writer, you're an artist, you're a man that wears many hats. Is juggling those hats hard to do or do you like that you're not just one thing all the time and that you do get to vary the type of work that you do? Well, I mean, right now I'm really just doing the color art, but, um, back when I was on staff at Marvel, I, you know, I was, you know, editing and I was writing and I was, uh, you know, doing the color and I did, I really, I liked that. Cause at no point I was never, ever bored. Um, and the, the good thing about when, when I was an editor, because I was actually, uh, you know, writing comics and doing the color, <laughs> it helped me to work with the people I worked with better. So I, I understood I, you know, I understood a lot better once I left staff, how freelance, you know, the, the stuff freelancers are dealing with, with the editors. Cause when you're on staff, you kind of get privileged treatment, I guess. Um, but it was, it was a lot more helpful to, you know, understand, okay, this is how uh, a comic book script goes. This is what's, I made it a lot easier for me to take a look and say, okay, this isn't working. That's not working. Um, you know, and, and it was fine. It's like, I would go to work and, you know, edit. And then I would go home and I would, you know, write and do color. And then I'd get a couple hours sleep and then I'd come. Yeah. Not be, not be bored for sure. Um, but you know, when you're in the office, you also, you get to see the people you work with a lot more often, you know, whereas now I'm lucky if some, no, everybody calls me to, to talk about a project. You know, I talk with, you know, the artists that I'm working with, but editors, you know, they'll email you or they'll message you or they'll text you. So you don't really get that back and forth, which was important. You know, when I was on staff, I would write something and the artist would come in and show me, you know, the pages 
And I, there, there is nothing more fun than seeing penciled original comic book art pages all day, every day. And especially when it's a story that you've written and it comes in and you know that you kind of wrote like a, a lame story, but it looks amazing. <laughs> and you're like, Oh my God, you know, I don't even deserve this art. It's so good. Um, and then you, but you get to see it the whole way through. Whereas, you know, when you're not in the office, you know, you'll see it, but it's not this, it's just not the same, you know, and in the office, I, I had a little more control over being able to say, well, you know, I need this fixed. I want that fixed. Uh, as soon as I went freelance and I needed things fixed, I had to depend, well, will the editor do it? Will the editor bother? Will the editor agree with me? What, but when I was there face to face with an editor, it was a lot easier to convince them to fix various things, or I had more influence over who I got to work with. That's interesting. And I guess there's a, that's really a loaded thing, right? Technology plays a factor into that. The way the industry yeah. has changed has played a factor to that. I feel like we could talk about this stuff all the day, but before we do, before we do the, 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 the overlook where we're going to talk about the book and the movie, you mentioned the film version of Nick Fury and the comic book version. Have you seen the made for TV sci-fi channel, David Hasselhoff version of Nick Fury? Look at your face. <laughs> of course. You know, you know, it's like, you know, it, when, it, when, when you've been working in comics, you watch all of it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. The good and the bad. And, you know, I mean, I just watched, uh, there was a documentary on the, the Roger Corman and fantastic four that never got released. Yeah. Um, I watched that. That was pretty interesting. So I went and found it on YouTube and I, I, I watched it and, you know, it wasn't, as terrible as I thought oh, it's it not be. the worst Fantastic Four movie. No, it's it's not the worst Fantastic better Four Fantastic Four than, than that Nick Fury thing. Um, <laughs> you know, and again, it's like, you know, it's like, cause you get it, you get in your head the way you want Nick Fury to be, especially, you know, I mean, cause he's my favorite, you know, and to me, it's, yeah. it's the Steranko Fury is really great. And um, I love Paul Neary's uh, Nick Fury on the Nick Fury versus, uh, versus shield series that he mm-hmm. drew. Um, so when I, you know, and I still like, I, geez, you know, the only guy I can think of that would have been a good Nick Fury would have been, you know, younger Clint Eastwood, um, you know, yeah. or, or maybe Kurt Russell, you know, like younger, you know, they, they might both have pulled it off. Yeah. That snake um, Plissken era, Kurt Russell definitely has that Nick Fury. Vibe. Yeah. You know, you can just, you can kind of, you can kind of see that. So it, it's tricky, you know, to, to go from, you know, you know, like with the shining to go from here's the, the source material and now we're going to move on to, to something else. Most of the characters, even though they've changed a lot of stuff for the Marvel characters, I've really enjoyed a lot of it. I think most of it's really great. I mean, I like Samuel L. Jackson, but he ain't Nick Fury. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You heard it here first. So since you mentioned it, let's, let's uh, punch our tickets. Let's go to the Overlook hotel for a little uh, rest and relaxation and uh, (laughs) some ghosts. So what was your first introduction to this Stephen King property? Well, you know, it, it, it was, you know, this, this paperback, which, yeah. you know, I, I got because they tore the cover off. So it was only a quarter. <laughs> um, so that was what I, the, the first thing I you know, did was I, was, I read that, but my, uh, my friend and I, we both liked horror and he didn't, he had introduced me to Salem's lot. Yeah. Um, so we both kind of got hooked on Stephen King. So we just kept reading, you know, what, whatever the next Stephen King book came out, we really, we read it and we devoured it. So as, as, movies started getting made, we were just constantly aggravated and disappointed that they just weren't the book at like at all, you know, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, it's like, I've been thinking about why, what's, what's the problem with it. So I know I have my view. Now. How old were you when you read Salem's Lot? Mm, 13, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I mean, what an awesome age. I think that's probably yeah. about when I read it. What did you read, Remy? Uh, my, my first was Night Shift. I read his collection of oh, short, wow, stories. short stories. Yeah. Yeah, That's one of the best collections of his. Awesome too. collection. I was about 13. And then my second was it just started devouring. Really? It. it was like, I was not ready. I was not ready. Dude. <laughs> Sleeping with the lights on. It was a mess. But, you know, The Shining is one of those ones that, you know, I, I, I read the book. I was probably 13, 14 when I first read The Shining. And it was freaky. But I, I don't know why it just never stuck with me as much, but it stuck with you. It made a huge impression on you. What, what oh, yeah. spoke to you about it? You know, it, I, I guess, you know, I've always, I've always enjoyed a lot of this, the supernatural stuff. And I like the, the, you know, it's a sophisticated, you know, story. Very. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's the thing. And, you, you know, cause you, 
there is no, the, the, you know, the hotel is the bad guy, you yeah. know, whereas, you know, and, you know, and you've got this, this child, you know, when you're young, you know, you like, you know, you sort of like there to be a, a younger person to sort of relate to, you know, cause you can look, I could look back on that and say, Oh, but this child's got this special ability and you're not, and he's, you know, the house is actually coming for him. Um, and he's trying to help, but no one's listening to him. Cause if you remember when you were a kid, you know, no matter what you said, Nobody was listening. It didn't matter if you were right or wrong. You're, you know, constantly being accused of something you, you never did. Um, so I, I could relate to, even though it was a small child, I could relate to, you know, to that kid. And then this, this whole idea, you know, of, of this, you know, them being alone in this giant hotel, you know, where they could just kind of go where they wanted. And there's, I don't know why, but I always found that fascinating. It's like uh, the original Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. The fact that they were like living in the mall and they could just yeah. go around. I don't know what it was about that, but I thought that's so cool. Um, but that's the thing, you know, in the overlook when they're, you know, when they're getting the tour, I'm going, Oh, I would want to go play over here. And I would want to look in, in here, you know, when they're, you know, in the book, when they're talking about it, you know, you get your own picture, uh, in your head. Um, and then of course there was the, the, the topiaries and I've, I've always been fascinated by topiaries. And in, in the book, I just imagined, you know, this, I just imagined them a lot bigger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did too. You know? Um, and a lot more of them in, in my head, but that was, that's the fun part about, I, what I like about a book book is, you know, your imagination thinks up all the stuff that, you know, they can't really, I mean, especially when they made the shining, there's stuff they just couldn't do. It just right. wouldn't look, it wouldn't look right. You know, it, it's tough because on, on one hand you have a movie that when I saw it, it was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. And still to this day is in my top five scariest horror movies of all time. And as its own piece that works for me, I know, I know, Kubrick himself, uh, you know, Stephen King himself is like, nah, you know, it's a good movie, but it's not my shining. And I I accept that. But like, can you imagine what a 1970s version would look like if it had like animatronic topiaries coming? I think that would be really awesome if we ever got to see that. And even when they tried to attempt it in the TV made for TV miniseries, I don't know if we've ever gotten the topiary climax of the shining that I think could be done. You know, well, cause you can never get it as good as you see in your own head. You know I mean? It's, mm. it's, you know, again, I go back to Jaws, you know, the, they, they couldn't make the shark work. So he had to just do this other thing, you know, with the, the music and the hint of the shark. Well, you know, what we imagined happening in Jaws was so much worse because once we finally saw the stupid shark at the end, this rubber looking thing, just with Robert Shaw, you're just like, <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. It like almost <laughs> ruins the rest of the movie if, if, if the movie hadn't been so good. But, you know, they, they couldn't show it, you know, um, you know, because I liked in the, in the TV miniseries at first, they didn't really show them moving. They showed, you know, like suddenly it's over here and now right. it's over here. Right. And that's, un, that's really unnerving because um, when I was, I just, you know, when I was watching go, oh, that's actually pretty unnerving or just, you know, like the snow is falling off of uh, the, of them. It's like, Oh, something is happening. You know, and I, I know what's going, going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then when they show the shot of Danny is there playing in the snow and you see these terrible sort of computer generated uh, topiaries walking towards them. I went, no, 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 no. That, it's not how it would look. You know, it's like, you know, what would a topiary look like if it was actually moving? It wouldn't look like a, an animal. It would look, you know, different. You know, it's like the, the ants in, um, the Lord of the Rings. Right. You know, exactly. Or, you know, you're like, well, how are they going to make an end? You know, you know, and I'm not sure that they succeeded a hundred percent, but pretty close. There's, there's a couple of interesting things to think about when you're thinking about a, a book and a movie, the same property, but it told through those two different mediums. And I've seen the Kubrick movie, I don't know, a hundred times. And I just read the book. I think it's my second or third time. And there's a couple things in the book that I think definitely like scenes that definitely translate better on the written page than they do on, on screen or that like the topiary that didn't make it at all. And it's funny that you mentioned the snow falling off the topiaries because that's how we are introduced to them moving. Dick Halloran mentions that something about stay away from the topiary, but Jack is outside and he hears snowfall, like a clump of snowfall. Yeah. And he turns around and one of the topiaries, there's no snow on it. Yeah. And then it, he turns around and he hears rustling. And when he turns back, it's definitely moved. But we, he doesn't see it move. So therefore, in the book, we don't see it move as well. Right. And I think the, both the book and the movie kind of do that a little bit where they're not flat out showing you this or that. They're implying it. And I think we've all been in that situation where we've been afraid that we're not alone. 
and you think that things are happening just outside your field of vision. And I think that as a yeah. writer, Stephen King knows how to say that and explain that, you know. Um, I think the topiaries is a great example of that. There's also a scene in the book where Jack falls asleep and he has a dream of his abusive father who we don't know anything about. If you just go by the Kubrick movie, that's not mentioned right, no, at all. That's completely taken out. So that's, you know, that, but that happens in every, every time that a, a book or a, or a written work gets transferred to screen, right? You got to cut the fat. You have to cut stuff that doesn't keep the story moving. You don't really need that per se. But one of my favorite scenes, now I just read this book in the last week. One of my favorite scenes is this dream of his abusive father who, as he starts to wake up from the dream, the father is instructing him to take care of his family and then flat out says to kill your family. And when he comes to in the real world, he's still hearing the voice from the CB radio. He's right. hearing his father's disembodied voice, which then he smashes the radio. And it's almost the scene from the movie where he wakes up and confesses to Wendy that he had a dream to kill them because she finds him and she's comforting him like a child. But what you get from the book in this scene is you get Jack's inner monologue where yeah. you see that he's conflicted where at one moment he's listening to the dad and he's like, right, I have to make them take their medicine. That's my husbandly and my fatherly duty. But then also the, the, the duality of like, no, like, what am I thinking? My dad was not the greatest man that I remember him to be. And also he's now instructing me to hurt my family. I can't do that. Which makes then when he switches towards the, at the end, when he switches and he's going after his family, it makes that that much more crippling to you as the reader. But uh, there's a lot of examples like that. Um, is there any other scenes, Mr. Wright, in the book that resonated with you, whether or not they made it to the film or even the miniseries, but is there any other parts in the book itself that really got you? Well, you know, honestly, the, the whole, the, the whole, all the stuff with the father, you know, mm. was, it was a very big deal because, you know, you know, I mean, I, that was one of the things I, I, when they, when I first saw the Kubrick film and it was gone, I was like, well, wait a minute, you know, how is, how is this going to even, you know, work? Because, you know, he, you know, the abusive father was, it, it, to me, it was like the big deal. So yeah, I would say that's, that's one of those, you know, key, key things, you know, that and, and the fact that, you know, Wendy in the book, you know, is, is a good character mm -hmm. um, who's very protective, who's, you know, trying to, you know, you know, save everybody. And, and in the movie, you know, I don't even, I don't know what they were thinking, you know, I mean, Shelley Duvall, you know, they're just not a family in that movie. You know, you've got Jack Nicholson who right from the back, you're like, yeah, he's going to go nuts. Uh, <laughs> you know, you've got Shelley Duvall, you're thinking, yeah, you know, I kind of want to smack her cause you know, she's annoying. And, and how did they get together? Um, and then you got this, this kid, that's the only one that you like in the movie. Um, it's like, they're just, they're, they're so separated and they're just not a family at all. And the, to me, the whole point of the book, you know, it's about family, you know, um, and, and the miniseries conveys the same thing that the book does because you can see them as a family and you can see that, you know, the, the, the fighting that, the, that, um, Wendy and Jack do it both in the book and the miniseries, it feels, it feels real, you know, because there's stuff in the past and then there's stuff that's happening now. And, they can't figure out well, what's, what's wrong with Jack. You know, they, you know, you know, and Danny's the only one that actually kind of knows mm. um, having that kind of missing, uh, you know, was, was bad, you know, because between that and the topiaries, because there was a kid, you know, when I was like, I can't wait to see the topiary scene. Um, and then when the <laughs> you got to wait scene, another 30, 40 years, you know, did they you, weren't even part of it. Did you see the movie when it first came out like in theaters? Yes. Well, that was the thing. See, when I first saw the movie, I hated it, you know, mm. I, you know, but I, I hated it because I, you know, I was such a huge Stephen King fan and I wanted the book yeah. and it wasn't the book. So I just, I really, I hated it. I hated everything about it. Um, I couldn't stand that Jack Nicholson was, it was Jack. Uh, I hated Shelley Duvall. Uh, the only thing I liked was Scatman Crothers. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it, it, yeah, it took me, a long time to kind of come back and just, and watch the movie for what it is. Um, you know, cause I probably, it was probably when I was in film school. Yeah. Um, we watched it for what it was. Cause we're, you know, of course we're all like Kubrick is God. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I loved everything else he did. So I watched it, you know, with a, with a different eye. So 
But when I finally watched it for what it was, I was like, oh, this is actually a brilliant film. It just has nothing to do whatsoever with the book in a lot of ways. But, you know, I, you know, cause I realized all these techniques that he used, you know, cause this was like the first use of a lot of study cam. Mm-hmm. It is one That's of the true. first steady cam movies. And I took a Kubrick class in college and it wasn't the first time I saw the shining, but we studied, we, I mean, we spent weeks on the shining, like researching yeah. it and researching the symbolism. And you're right though. Like when we first meet Jack, he's already broken. He's barely holding yeah. it together. Their family's already ripped apart because of his abusiveness and, and, uh, alcoholism and like he's he's dry for the moment but this guy's been a jackass to his family and when he gets to the hotel the hotel just needs to push him over the edge he's standing there and the hotel just gives him a little push to take him into that level of, of insanity that we see him get to but i love the symbolism in this movie and the book is full of symbolism too but they both have have sort of different angles at that whereas the movie uses a lot of native american symbolism and the ghosts in the movie are derived from the it was built on a native american burial ground which is almost a throwaway line but it said what like when we're looking at the hotel itself and that becomes a theme throughout the whole movie um but in the book do you guys remember what some of the themes are that drive the insanity and the and the supernatural elements is it is it native americans or is it something different i don't they don't mention native americans at all in the book zero times but there's Um, like a lot of the design of the hotel Oh, because apparently they built the entire interior of the hotel inside of a studio, which I, I only recently found. I was like, wow, this wasn't a real place. Yeah, but the they exterior was a real place. A lot of the, the Native American um, stuff into the hotel itself. Right. Um, which was, you know, pretty fascinating. You're like, oh, you know, I, I wish I would have noticed that, you know, back when uh, when I was hating the movie. But, you know, once I started to like the movie, then... Um, yeah, the, the, the movie the, it's one of those things they're, they're really different in the movie they, they do it is a throwaway line and I feel like that's such a throwaway plot point like you know so many movies just the fact that it is a throwaway and they like Stephen King talks about Micmac Native Americans numerous times in numerous different books and stories because it's like his thing you're like okay but in this it's just a throwaway because it's like oh uh, why is it haunted I don't know Native Americans in the book it's not mentioned at all in the book there's a lot of different shady shit that happens there. And it's mostly like kind of Dick Halloran explaining to Danny how the shining works, where we understand that like kind of everything has this otherworldly dimension shit. That's just under most of our perception, but someplace like a hotel that has so many lives going in and out and so many people die in a hotel, like just regularly, then there's also all this shady shit that has happened there, both death and otherwise that leaves these imprints there. Um, we also learned something. Another thing that I really liked in the book that was not in the movie at all is Jack becomes obsessed with the hotel itself. And in the book, we are made clear numerous times that the hotel wants Danny and numerous times we understand Jack thinks the hotel wants him. And when he realizes the hotel wants Danny more than him, he gets almost like jealous. Jelly. But as the, as the book moves on, he spends more and more time in the basement looking through old records. And he starts oh. finding these weird clues about the history of the overlook, including this old scrap album. That's almost like, the sketch scratch album it's all like the murders the affairs all this really like dark dank stuff that has happened there and he's obsessed there's numerous times where he's reading that book and suddenly it's five o'clock in the morning and he doesn't know where the rest of the night went because he just kind of got obsessed with the book so that's a good it's actually a really great device for stephen king to let us know all this backstory and exposition he's reading newspaper articles um one thing the book does that I like that the movie didn't do is there's numerous times in the book where the family goes down to Sidewinder, the nearest right. town. And like that takes them out of the overlook. And for the book, you have to do that to get like some of these plot points moving. But the fact that they are stuck in the hotel the whole time in the movie, and I'll touch on that later. Um, I like that. I like that. We don't visually see them get away from the hotel in the movie, in the book. It doesn't take anything away, but I feel like if you saw them at a library in the movie, it would be a huge visual disconnect that you'd be like, Oh, they can get out. Even if you know, there's like snow on the road and stuff, you know that that's an option. But, uh, yeah, he, there's no, no, in no uh, native American stuff. He just finds all this history and there's like mobsters owned it at some point, sexual deviants owned it, uh, owned it at some point. Um, 
what do you think about the backstory of uh, the Overlook, Mister Wright? Are you you like you like how the book kind of showed showed that through the the stuff in the in the basement? Oh, I, I love that part. You know, I mean, that's you know, again, part of the, the problem that when you make a movie of a book like The Shining is there's no way that you're going to have enough time to to pull all the stuff that you want. Um, sure. So it was faster for them to just let's ignore this thing. Well, we're going to ignore this, you know, it's like, he, you know, it's like mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's just writing a book that he's not actually writing because he's already lost his mind. Um, but it was a lot more interesting that, you know, his, his goal was to make some money for his family and uh, this will give him some time to write this play that means so much to him. And then um, I, you know, I don't know whether he, it's, I, I never quite decide if, if the stuff he found at the overlook and the scrapbook, which is great stuff, if that just intrigued him so much, or if that was again, part of the hotel, kind of dragging, looking, you know, the hotel dragging him in. Mm. Um, but, you know, when he decides he's going to switch from, uh, you know, writing his play to writing the book, um, that was really intriguing because all, the, all that stuff, it was very interesting, you know, to, to read that. So, again, when that was, it was like, more, how much stuff can we take out of the book that didn't go in the movie? But you could never, you know, the, the miniseries actually allows them to do the, the, the whole story. Right. Because right. there's enough time. Um, and it, it take and it, it, what's nice is, you know, when I was watching the miniseries, it, it pacing and, and I didn't mind that they left the hotel early, you know, cause some of it was necessary, but because it was longer, uh, by the time that they couldn't leave, um, you, it was fine. Um, but, uh, you know, having the time to, you know, to see, you know, Jack's character being a good dad, you know, and, and struggling, right. having things and seeing, you know, Wendy, uh, being strong and, you know, and, and seeing Danny trying to figure stuff out. And, you know, you know, so by the time you got to the creepy stuff, you know, you were like, you were, you liked, you liked these three characters. Um, and that was a big deal for me because in the book I, I liked, you know, them, you know, cause I didn't know anything about the book when I first read it, you know? So it's like when Jack starts going nuts, I was like, Oh my God, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> whereas in the movie, I'm like, yeah, you know, well, first it's hard to watch the shining is a movie if you've read the book, cause you know, what's going to happen. Sure. That it, the movie is kind of, you know, ruined for you. You, you hope, I, I would hope that some people could get to see that without what, reading the book. Um, because it's, it, it is a great movie, but you know, when you know what's going to happen, you know, but I don't know if you, I think you probably you'd take one look at Jack Nicholson and go, well, he's going to go nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and if he hasn't already, right? Yeah. They don't even hide that, but it's, it's, a, I know. think it's about the descent and then the fear of the child. I mean, it's like you said, it's Danny's story and Jack is just kind of, he's the eyes that you see Danny's story through or the, per, the, the protagonist, I guess, even though he's the one who goes crazy and tries to murder his family with a uh, mallet or ax, depending on which version you're watching. Um, one of my favorite I, things is a mallet was way more frightening. <laughs> Agreed. Oh, really? I agree. Okay. Smashing why, why, is always scarier than cutting, right? Yeah. Why, why is mallet scarier for you guys? Why do you think that works? Cause, well, cause you know, you can hit somebody with a mallet multiple times. Yeah. And, and, and just drag it out. And you'll never know. Cause you know, he does that, you know, to, uh, to Wendy in the, you know, in the book and in there, you know, he breaks her, he breaks her leg and you know, she's like, Oh my God, she could still get away. Whereas if somebody's got an ax and they bury that in your skull, you're done. Yeah. It's way more brutal. Rumi, the scene, and I think we've watched it together. The scene in killer clowns from outer space yeah. where the, there's a big clown outside the burger joint and he's going to giving the Camille finger to the little girl. Yeah. And he's got a mallet behind his back. He's going to squash that little girl. How fucking brutal is that? Right. You know? You know, I mean, you know, that's, the, you know, you just, it is, it's, you know, it's, it's one of the, it's just one of those things that, you know, you know, I liked the ax. I liked it better when, when, you know, Wendy had the bat. Yeah. Yes. So, I agree with that. I thought that as well, having just read the book, you know, Give but an ax is like, you know, it's going to be over too quickly, you know, um, I guess for me, the ax is, is the key to any door, you know, he doesn't need to, doesn't need to waste too much time to get through any doors that you put in front of him, which, which oh, the mallet seemed to work pretty good too. He, you know, <laughs> it's true. They, you know, make, I mean, they do either make or, you know, although it's like, I don't know. It's like, if you've got an ax, how did he not get to her? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> although when you read the book too, it's like, how did he not kill her with that mallet? He had Danny too. He had plenty of time, but he does a little bit of like the, the, the gesturing, a little bit of the, the talking villain, about the villain relish, know. man. He, he's relishing yeah, 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 in the yeah. moment and a little monologue and stuff. Well, cause he's not actually, you know, he's not himself period. So, you know, right. I always kind of felt like there was this internal struggle pulling back and forth. Um, I, I would hope it wouldn't be like the villain monologuing, you know, which, 
we do all, we all have written those. Uh, <laughs> you know. It's like, you know why the guy, the guy didn't win? Cause he wouldn't shut up. Yeah. <laughs> well, something that you said before about you hope that somebody would watch the movie without having read the book. I, I think Aaron, you're in the same boat as me, but we saw the Kubrick movie first. At least I know I did before I read the book and like, I think I'm, I'm like you, Mr. Wright, with Stephen King specifically movies and books, except the opposite when it comes to The Shining. Most Stephen King movies, I really can't get behind compared to the book, regardless of which one I've seen first. The Shining is the exception. I saw the movie first and I read the book and I thought the book was not as strong as the movie. However, I wish I could go back in time and read the book first because I think a lot of Stephen King movies or television series for that matter, I read the book first. So then when I watched the movie, like you in this case, I was like, okay, they forgot this. They didn't do this. They changed this. And then I could make my judgments for there. When I go back and read the shining, the book, Danny is having premonitions of this force coming down and smashing the walls and yelling his name. And I'm like, the writing seems very heavy handed that it's Jack from like page four. And I'm like, do I just know that? Cause I've seen the movie a hundred times. Right. Did you, I mean, but you say the book was very impactful when you first read it. Right. Enough so that you like it. You think the book is superior than to the movie. Well, cause I, I, I'd read a lot of Stephen King books before they started making the movies. So, mm. you know, you know, it, it's like, you know, it's like anything when you, when you read, have the book, but there are movies I've seen. And then I went back and read the book and then I was annoyed that the book wasn't like the movie. Yeah. Uh, sure. 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 Uh, That's me in this case. Right. Rumi, are you the same one? Did you, did you see something? You know, I, I, but I read the book, I read the book first and then I saw that movie. So what did I you think about ready player one? Way. So, Oh, my okay. Daughter, my daughter read the book and she was, and when she went to the movie, she was angry because they changed a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so I read the book afterwards and I went, Oh, I got it. I like both versions uh, of the story, but because I saw the movie first and I thought they did a really great job. And I, I do, I love this, the shining scene. <laughs> the how, how good was it that they brought it back and used book elements and movie elements to at l- become this cohesive merging of the two properties? I thought that was pretty brilliant. Yeah, it was, it was very cleverly done, you know, and I, I was shocked cause I didn't know, you know, I, you know, I got to see the movie clean. I didn't know anything about it. Um, which is, I, I very rarely get to do that, especially now mm. with the internet. Yeah. Um, so I had no idea that was coming. I'm like, Oh my God, they're going in there. Like, Oh, they're going to, Oh my God, they're really doing that part. You know, I'm like, wow, that really <laughs> looks like the overlook. You know, they really, you know, nailed it. They really did, you know, did a great job. Um, so I, yeah, but that, but, I was so surprised about how good that movie was because it didn't try and be a shining sequel. It tried to be a Danny continuation of Danny's story until we got to the third act. Then it became the shining sequel. I expected it to be. And wait, you're talking about Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep. Yeah, Dr. We're talking Sleep. about ready player one. Oh, I heard Dr. Sleep. Sorry. Cause you were talking about the shining. <laughs> I didn't um, see that yet. I'm I got to see that. I'll strike. That I haven't seen it either. No spoilers. Really. Worthy. Uh, I've heard exactly what you said was that it, it, t- it takes the book stuff and the movie stuff and puts them together into this hybrid that works as a sequel to both. Yeah. Um, well, ready so player one, they to nailed two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you read that book, Mr. Wright? Uh, Dr. Sleep? No, you know what? I haven't really read a lot of uh, Stephen King's recent stuff. Um, somewhere along the line, when I started writing, you know, professionally, I stopped re- reading as much fiction as I, I would like. Mm. Um, so so now you need to watch the movie first and then read the book. Probably what's going to happen, you know, is I'll, I'll watch the movie, you know, first, but I'm more interested in seeing the movie. Um, and you know, the, the book is, a, is, it's a lot more, uh, you know, it's going to take me longer to read it. Sure. Um, mm, so, absolutely. So I, I do sometimes, you know, I shortcut and, you know, watch the, you know, the movie, the movie version. Um, but you know, this one was definitely one of his better, his newer stuff uh, is nowhere near as good as his, in my opinion, is nowhere near as good as his old stuff. But this book, Dr. Sleep book was a lot better than a lot of the newer stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. So check back in with us after you read it, but talking about Stephen King books and movies, what are some Stephen King? And when I say movies, I mean, movies or television movies, like TV movies. What are some Stephen King uh, movies or TV movies that you did like that you thought were good? Doesn't necessarily have to be better than the book, but what were some that you can get behind? Well, you know, what's funny is the, the best ones were of books and stories that are not really horror stories, you know, things like the green mile, yeah. uh, the Shawshank redemption, stand by me, you know, those are just, you know, yeah. you almost can't believe Stephen King wrote 
those those stories, and they actually stand up pretty well to to the original material. Um, but I thought Misery was really well done. Yeah, um, I love the Dead Zone. You know, I mean, it's kind of goofy, but you know, I, I do love the Dead Zone. Cujo, I thought, was one of the first ones they got right. I mean, because it's a very simple you sure. know, story of of a mom and her son trapped in this car by this giant rabid dog. But I thought, oh, they they pulled that. I think it was actually made by Toby Hooper. Yeah. Um, I think was it? Um, did he do? Did he do? Cujo I feel like I should know that off the top of my head. Or he's like the chain, he's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre guy. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely him. Yeah, How do you I think feel he about did Christine? that. But there was that one was good. Um, How did you else. feel about Christine? Oh, I, I well, it's I, I like the book better, you know. But I, I have a you know the, the movie just cracks me up. You know, I think yeah. I think I, I was a huge <laughs> Keith Gordon fan at one point for no apparent, I don't know why I just, I kept seeing movies would <laughs> liked him. Uh, and then I, I met him when he was becoming a, a filmmaker. Um, cause he became a, a, I think it was called a midnight clear was this one of his first movies. He became a very good director. And when I met him, you know, I, I was like, Oh, and I was talking about all these movies he'd made. And, he, and I realized I know way too much about this guy. I feel like maybe I'm a, I feel stalkerish. And he was so thrilled that somebody actually knew, but he was in all these movies because he was in Jaws 2, uh, you know, and then Christine and then uh, the, the Rodney Dangerfield movie um, where he was, they were divers uh, back to school. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, I do like, you know, Christine, it's, you know, but it's, I don't know, they, the, the movie, the book was kind of terrifying and the movie was more like, it, it felt more like those sort of 80s horror movies that, yeah. you know, we all, well, I don't know, you guys are a lot younger than me, but, you know, we just used to go to see, you know, you know, the, the nightmare on Elm street and the, the Friday, the 13th and how they, it didn't matter that it was the same damn story over and over. Right, it was fun, right? It was fun. You know, yeah. we went to get those, those jolts and, you know, again, we wanted to see a little bit of gore. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and Christine's one of those things that I was super surprised cause I had read the book and then I saw the movie and it was, wow, this is the best movie about a killer car I could have hoped for. And it's like the yeah, fact that yeah. you pulled it off from a story, which I was like, there's no way they're going to make John this. Carpenter, a... yeah, wasn't it? yeah, John yeah, Carpenter. Yeah, for that one was John and, Carpenter. Because well, it nailed the car. Nailed it. Yeah, yeah. You know, the fact that the car was broken and it fixed itself on camera, you're like, oh, that was such a, that's the best scene in the movie. Cool, so that could really that trick, look but, stupid, but right. it didn't. It's, it's, it's amazing what they were able to pull off. That's one of those ones that I think is so bizarrely successful, but I, he just has so many, like uh, as a kid, pet cemetery scared the hell out of me. And even though it diverts from the book, you know, there's no Wendigo or anything like that. It, it, the, the movie terrified me. I mean, especially cause it's, yeah, it's, it, it's a fun movie. Yeah. You know, but again, how do you feel about the mini series of it? The original mini series? Well, it was all right. You know, I mean, <laughs> You know, I, you know, the book is, you know, what I imagined reading the book yeah, was just so much worse, you know, but, you know, I, I mean, I know people liked it, but it, it kind of went that, it, it, I mean, again, a lot of, they, they take the, the, the flashy parts of these, the books and they forget all the, like, the really good character stuff and the, the stuff that made you think, you know, yeah. like, you know, it's like, you know, when somebody says, yeah, what is it? What's about that clown that drags people into the store? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. You saw the okay. You saw the poster. You know, (laughs) that is one of those ones that I saw the I saw the miniseries a couple times first. Then when I finally read the book, having seen the miniseries and like you said, the flashy parts, I knew those beats going into it. But there's so much in the book that when you start reading it, it just blows your mind. Suddenly you've read a thousand plus pages and you don't even remember. I mean, certain visuals from the, the, the movie are ingrained in your head, even as you read the book. But for the most part, that was one of those ones that it hadn't mattered that I'd seen the movie. The book was just so rich. I think that's probably the right word, at least for that yeah. specific one where you're just, and, you, and it was, it was at the peak in my opinion of like his storytelling ability where like even the slower, more boring parts of that book, you were just like, you wanted to know everything about everything that was happening there. So much character development. Oh, it was such a good book. Now I'm going to have to go back and read that one too. <laughs> well, that, that's the, that's the point really. But what's, what's funny is if you watch the movie first and then you go back and you read the book, now you hear those, the voices from the movie as you read the book or you see it. It's like, you know, right. I can't read the shining now without picturing Jack Nicholson in the, in the role um, even though, you know, I mean, I just watched, you know, the, the Stephen Weber miniseries, you know, uh, and it, it takes me a while to like accept him as, as, as Jack, because, you know, Jack, well, you know, once you see Jack Nicholson in a role, you just, you know, take yep. it. 
but it was it was a relief, you know, to watch Stephen Weber because because it seemed like how could you be no because you're supposed to like him, right, you know? right, right. And he's a likable guy, and then once he starts going off, you know, and I was like, wow, I, I actually believe that. Yeah, um, you know, it so makes it a tragedy. Development. What? Yeah, it makes it a tragedy because, like in the movie The Shining the hotel is the family saving grace. They get, they get Wendy and Danny away from an abusive situation. Whereas in the book, it's a tragedy that Jack becomes crazy and tries to kill his family. Yeah. yeah. Having just watched the miniseries, Mr. Wright, And I think a lot of people, a lot of people probably haven't seen it. They no, just have not. heard that it's not that great, but the fact that you just watched it and it's in your head and actually you don't seem to hate on it as much as everybody else. What are what's what's a thing or two in that miniseries that you think gets it right, either just from a storytelling perspective in general or when related to the book itself? Well, you know, mostly it's it's it it takes its time so that you get to know the characters. You know, we don't we we you know we we don't we know Jack in the movie you know right off right away. You know, you have to. It's a movie. You have to have a shortcut. But you know, we learn so much about all three of the characters um, in the miniseries. And that's the thing, you know, you know, most of the stuff I like about Stephen King is, you know, you, you, he takes his time and he reveals things as they go along. He doesn't just, you know, drop stuff on you. It's not like, well, they showed up at the hotel and, you know, oh, by the way, you know, they're, they're, the lion bites just bit off somebody's head, uh, you know, outside. No, you think you see it. Maybe you don't see it, you know, because you're, you're never quite sure with Stephen King because he'll set stuff up that's not really happening. Uh, um, but that was, for me, it was, it was being able to get that sort of a slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, and they got the characters, they got the characters, right. You know, that, that was the other thing, you know, and again, they, they, and we got the Toby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I love that hedge, you know, in, in the main, in the, in the, uh, the Kubrick movie, but you know, it, it got, you know, it had all the stuff I wanted to, but, and again, the stuff with the father, um, it, it, to me, again, that's a, a big deal. You sort of understand, you know, well, why was he, you know, cause in the movie, why was he a drunk? You know, what was he doing about it? And, you know, in the miniseries, uh, you know, he's going to meetings, uh, you know, and he goes, he does go down to Sidewinder for, for some meetings. So you sort of get that and, you know, he's got the dream and he's got the flashbacks and in the, and the CB, uh, and, he t- and he's talking to his uh, friend who um, was also an alcoholic uh, so you kind of, you understand that the damaged part of that character, whereas, you know, in the, in the movie, he's just a loon mm-hmm. yeah, right off the bat going the opposite side of that same coin. There are some things that I think in the movie, the Kubrick movie does better than the book, maybe not necessarily better than the, um, the miniseries, but I guess thinking about film as a visual medium and a, a novel as more, like you said before, like in your imagination, what are some things that the movie got right? Whether it's a visual thing or not, what are some things that were in the movie that you think was the right way to go? Well, I, I love the, the the tracking shots with the steady cams, which yeah. I don't know why they're so creepy. And, and little things like, you know, when Danny is riding his little uh, big wheel and, you know, and you hear, <laughs> I mean, there's something about that that, you know, you were creepy, you know, he, they did a really good job of making this place, you know, this gorgeous place. It was creepy without it having to look creepy. You know, that was great. You know, the, the visual of that, all of this stuff in, in the bar, um, where, where he, you know, with the bartender, I mean, I, I really feel like, I think the movie did a much better job with the, the actual ghost characters, mm. um, because you were, you were unsettled. You were like, are they real? Are they in his head? You know, uh, and the performances, you know, Grady, you know, was fantastic. Yeah. The bartender, you know, just the, the lighting, um, on the bar. I thought that was, you know, fantastic. I mean, all the visual, I mean, all the visual stuff, I mean, you know, you just can't, you know, Kubrick is, he's such a visual genius, you know, that, you know, you know, I mean, and the hedge made as much as I, you know, I wanted those other things, you know, that's a pretty brilliant uh, thing to do, you know, cause yeah. there's this great shot in the movie where uh, Wendy and Danny are walking through the maze, bef- you know, when it's not snowing and stuff. And then they, there's the model of it. And he does this shot from above of, of like of the model, but it's not the model. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know? push in and on it, them. And it, you know, again, Kubrick does these visual things that unnerve you or, uh, you know, transport you this other direction, you know, which is things you, you can't do in a book. Um, uh, one of my so, favorite examples of that is that there's, it's, it's so subtle, but it's one of my favorite things in the entire movie is when he goes down into the, 
the pantry with Halloran, Scatman Crothers, and Scatman Crothers turns to Danny and in his head goes, hey, Doc, you want some ice cream? Visually behind him, there's all these Calumet baking powder cans and it's an Indian, yeah. a Native American smoking a peace pipe. The yep. ice cream is a peace offering. Later in the yep. movie, when they throw Jack in there and slam the door, he crashes through all those Calumet baking cans, destroying the peace that, that had been built between the ghosts and the humans that had lived there. And that is the moment where the ghosts take over and everything is out. They let him out of the freezer. And that subtle, weird, subtle visual style is to me what makes the Kubrick masterpiece, like sort of makes that come full circle for me. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. It's like, you're, you guys are bringing a couple little things up. I, I hadn't thought about with, with the, the movie, you know, so now, now I got to watch the movie. Again and sort of, <laughs> We're all going to be doing homework tonight. Yeah. Well, oh, cause it's God. fun. I mean, that's, that's why it's fun to talk about this stuff. Cause people, people find things or get things, uh, whether in a book or the series or whatever that somebody else didn't pick up and you go, Oh, I didn't think of it like that. Well, now what if I watch that, you know, thinking about that, you know, it's like, it's fun when people do these reviews of movies and people find stuff. I'm like, what, you know, could people do that with, People would do that with the stuff I wrote. Well, you obviously meant this. And I'm like, well, actually, no, you're a dumbass. <laughs> well, maybe I should actually use that. Uh, you know, that's actually maybe not a bad idea, you know, because you get fan letters and, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm just like, oh, maybe I will do that, you know, uh, you know, or it's like, you know, because, or they find weird things. Like somebody did, um, they did this review of a part of Silver Sable. I used to write Silver Sable as female mercenary. And, uh, you know, you're talking about me writing this secret lesbian assassin squad. And I'm like, I did what? Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I actually did. I feel like we can just keep talking about the shining, like this property, whether it's uh, a film medium, a TV medium or a, a book medium, but I don't want to get stuck into this so that uh, some little kid's going to come over my house and find all of our ghosts just talking about this forever and ever and ever and ever. Yeah. Um, I guess just uh, if you guys haven't seen any one of the things that we're talking about, if you never read the book, if you never saw the movie, if you never saw the, the miniseries, we all agree, the three of us all agree, at least all of them are worth checking out, right? We certainly have favorites and we might disagree amongst ourselves, but it's definitely worth watching. Mm-hmm. Maybe not forever, never, never, but at least once. I know I'm going to have to go buy the DVD now and watch the, the miniseries because I couldn't find a stream. I couldn't even find it on YouTube. But, uh, see what you think because it's stylistically, it doesn't have any of the, 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 the punch that the, the Kubrick film does. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of it. It's a very straightforward telling um, of the book. Sure. Uh, so you're not going to get that, you know, that that excitement from, Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. You know, there's a lot of good stuff in it, but you know, and, and there is some pretty bad uh, CGI in it. Ooh, uh, fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta like give that credit. Cause that happened at that time. And I think the fact that I just read the book, it's funny, uh, Mr. Wright and I both keep holding up our paperbacks physically like, in our hands right like now, we can see. but we just read those. I, I just read the book recently. So I think watching the miniseries, it'll be fresh in my mind and I can make the, the direct connections between yeah. the two of them. So I'll have to go back and do that. But uh, you guys definitely have to watch, watch the shining, watch the shining. And of course, read the shining and uh, Mr. Wright, you've worked on quite a few comic books. So you guys can go check out books that he's edited stuff that he's written a ton of stuff that he's colored. Um, we would love to have you back on at some point to talk about your work, but we love to have people on that we respect and talk about what they like to nerd out about. So this has been a ton of fun. Really this has been a fun. good time. Where can people oh, we could have a whole, we could do a whole talk on Clive Barker. Cause I got to, I got to work with Clive Barker at one point. I am. A oh, I know you did a Nightbreed comic, fan. right? We did. I, you know, I, I edited Nightbreed and then I edited a comic called Hellraiser Nightbreed Jihad. Uh, and then I have to write a three issue Nightbreed uh, story. So yeah, I used to talk to Clive on the phone quite often. And that was a, uh, that was very interesting. Can I tell you guys a secret? One of my pet projects is on the side. I'm writing a Predator versus Pinhead comic. Cool. Just just nice. for funsies. I, it, it, it may never be anything, but I'll just have it for myself and I like it and it's fun. But it's a it's a big epic battle where the Predator somehow gets sucked into the hell world and, and starts hunting Cenobites and the Leviathan allows him because it pisses off Pinhead and causes suffering for Pinhead. So it's this epic battle between these two guys in, in Pinhead's world. But I love 
pinhead. I love Clive Barker. That's yeah, really cool to hear. That would be that would be a really fun conversa- conversation. In twenty years from now, there'll be a bunch of nerds on a podcast debating what's better: that comic book, the the movie about it, or the miniseries about it. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing was they did so many. There's been so many versions. Um, you know, you know, Clive was always about take my world and do whatever you want with it, <clears throat> which was very cool. Um, so it wasn't, uh, you know, we did the movie adaptation of it, but that, that was, I mean, it was actually, I thought it was better than the movie. Um, cause we got more of the stuff in there that they cut from the movie, but the rest of it had, you know, it was just, we're going to use these characters and take off. And he wasn't very precious about a lot of the stuff, um, which was kind of a surprise. Yeah. Um, you know, so it all, it all kind of holds together by it on its own. You don't have to compare, I guess, you know, in the Hellraiser stuff, there were so many, uh, after the Hellraiser movies, the Marvel did, well, Mar- Epic did a, a Hellraiser series and it was just, it was an anthology. So you've got all kinds of people just doing, you know, really crazy, cool stuff, uh, you know, and it was, you know, it was fun it. to be there and watch this, you know, stuff come in and have the executives at Marvel go, wait a minute, what, what is this? You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, where can people follow you, find out what you're up to and find your stuff? <clears throat> well, I'm on Facebook. Um, that's the best place to find. That's where I mostly am. So you can always direct people there. And I've been writing a, a ton of uh, behind the scenes comic stuff, which uh, has been very, pretty well received. So it's super um, interesting stuff to read through. You can find, you know, cause I just keep going and going. Um, I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm easy to find, but you know, the only thing you'll find on Instagram is me posting pictures of food. Um, <laughs> I, I see that you've been doing quite a bit of that during the uh, quarantine, you know, so I'm on there, but you know, on, on Facebook, you know, I, I do belong to several, um, like comic groups and stuff. And a, a lot of us are, we're pretty happy to, you know, chat. If somebody has an actual question, um, you know, we'll, you know, I, I interact with people all the time as, as you well know. And, it's funny because a lot of times, you know, people, Oh, you know, you were doing this color. I really liked And they find out that I know some other thing. And the next thing you know, you know, we're, we're messaging back and forth for like a week over something that has nothing to do with comic books. Um, cause you find out, you know, you know, every, you know, everybody has multiple interests. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like people, go, Oh, you're just a comic guy. And I'm like, well, actually I'm, I'm more of a music guy and more of a food guy. Um, but I did, you know, I, I've done thousands of comic books. Um, <laughs> I wish I was still doing thousands of comic books, you know, um, it's like right now I've been doing mostly independent work. I did, um, I did a run on, uh, uh, Bane. We did a 12 issue miniseries with Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan. Yeah. And then, uh, I'm working on a secret project with Graham Nolan right now. That's got a lot of crazy Ditko-esque, uh, elements to it. Exciting. Uh, and, and, uh, artist Brett Blevins, uh, is drawing and inking that, uh, and he actually, uh, did Nightbreed, uh, for me when I was an editor Very um, cool. and I got a, a horror noir thing that we're, we're waiting, Ooh. we're waiting for, we, we lost our original artist on it. So we're waiting <clears throat> for somebody else, but you know, sometimes they don't, you don't get paid for the independent comics. It's like you, you do them, somebody publishes them. And then if it sells, you get some money. Otherwise you kind of did it just for the, <laughs> No, very different from my days at Marvel. Yeah. Well, guys, you should follow Greg Wright on Facebook and Instagram and follow us, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Launchpad Pod. Look for us on our website, launchpadpod.com. Mr. Wright, thank you so much again. This has been so much fun. Matt, should, oh, we, blast, should we blast this thing off? What do you think? Oh, yeah, definitely. So we have a secret handshake at the Launchpad Podcast, so we're going to walk you through it, all right? All so right. you come out, you're going to have your hand horizontal. We'll say, ready, go, we'll go, comes in, then you invert it, and then we're going to blast off like a rocket ship, but with a raspberry, so it's, so we'll come in from the side, ready? Yep. All right, ready, three, two, one. That's right, fun. Guys. Right? We do it every week. Every week. That's fun. For years. Well, this has been the Launchpad Podcast. We're the Rocketeers, and we are out. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one.